All right, well, we are only about midway through what's already been a very busy summer. There have been camps, there's been VBS, there have been travel events and occasions. We've had guest preachers. There have been a few different one-off sermons from yours truly. And now today, at long last, we are back in our Christ preeminent series, our Sunday morning study uh, through the book of Colossians. We're just two sermons into this book and just two sermons into this series, but we are going to be making a lot of headway, I can assure you, in this book over the next couple of months. So I hope your seatbelts are fastened. I hope you're ready to embark on what I pray will be a very rich and profitable study of this incredible little letter. Now, since it's been a while, I think it'd be good if we spent some time on the front porch this morning sort of reestablishing ourselves as to what's going on in this letter. So by way of very brief review, uh, you'll recall that Colossians was written, at least in human terms, by the Apostle Paul uh, under the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit, of course. Uh, He wrote this letter somewhere around 60 to 62 AD, and as he did so, he was wearing chains He was sitting under the watchful eye of a Roman guard in a prison cell in Rome. And the motivation behind Paul's letter here to the church at Colossae, a church he had never visited, but a church through his faithful gospel preaching in nearby Ephesus, he had certainly indirectly influenced. The motivation behind Paul's letter to Colossae came from a man who had visited him there in Rome. This man's name was Epaphras. And Epaphras was a native of that city of Colossae and was likely the man that the Lord used to plant and start the Colossian church. And Epaphras, you might recall, had traveled some 1,300 miles to Rome, not only to see Paul, but to tell Paul of this encroaching danger of this heresy that was starting to take root in this early Colossian church. And now, having heard of this multidimensional heresy, which had a hodgepodge of bad ingredients sent straight from hell, you know, a pinch of philosophy, a spoonful of tradition, an ounce of asceticism, a sprinkle of angel worship, a dash of deception, among other things, Paul, as he wrote this letter to the Colossian church, did so not only to equip these believers against the danger of the heretical teachings that were coming into their assembly, but also to get them to set their focus on, their attention on, their gaze on the one who had saved them, the one who bought them, the one who was and is their master. Not only their master, though, but the ruler and master over all things, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is Christ preeminent. With that, we turn to our text this morning, and I invite you to open with me in your Bibles to Colossians 1. We'll be looking this morning at Colossians 1, And we're going to look at verses 9 through 12 this morning. God's word reads, For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, For the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Now, a bit more review as we get ready to to dig deeper into this text. In the first sermon I gave you in this series, we went more through an, an overview of the book of Colossians as a whole. And we were introduced to the key characters and the the geographic setting and the historical setting and the theological controversy that was brewing there and those sorts of things. Then the last time we looked at this book in sermon number two in this series, the title of that sermon was Giving Thanks to God. We looked at the many different reasons that Paul had for giving thanks to God for this church, a church he had never personally visited, but a church he clearly cared deeply about. In fact, if you would, allow your eyes to go up to Colossians 1.3 for a reminder of the various ways in which Paul was giving thanks to God for this dear collection of believers. Colossians 1.3, we give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints. Because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you, just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. Just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow bondservant, who is a faithful servant of Christ on our behalf. And he also informed us of your love 
in the spirit. And that brings us back to our text where now Paul lays out his prayer for the Colossian church. Now, there are a number of different ways that that we could go about this passage and dig into this passage. For instance, we could look at this passage as being a model prayer that Paul is modeling for, for each of us. And we could leave here this morning feeling very convicted about how inadequate and lacking our prayer lives are. We could also go a different way of spending multiple months in just these four verses and doing sort of the Martin Lloyd-Jones thing where you dissect the meaning of every single term and phrase and never make any progress in the text, but you do come away with a very deep understanding of the unique definitions of every term and phrase. Or we can do what I plan to do here this morning, which is to locate the central idea in Paul's prayer here, the golden thread, if you will, and not lose our grip on that thread as we look at each facet and aspect of what's going on in this text. That's what we're going to do here this morning. We're going to fix our attention on what I believe is the central propositional truth in this passage. And what we're going to see is that in this text, the main thrust of Paul's prayer for the Colossians, the focal point of his prayer, the fulcrum of his prayer, was that these early believers, for whom Paul was so very thankful, was that they would walk worthy. That's the title of this morning's sermon, Walking Worthy. And I've given it that title because if you look at verse 10 here in Colossians 1, right in the middle of our passage, you're going to see the purpose clause for this entire section. Look at the first few words there at verse 10. He says, so that, that's a a hina clause or a hina clause, it's a, a purpose statement. So that, meaning you really need to pay attention to what comes next and then look at what comes next. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So as Paul here addresses the early Colossian church, as he gives thanks to God for them, as he prays for them, at the heart of it all is this prayer that they would walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That's the big idea here, the central focus here, and that's going to be the big idea for the message this morning. Now, the Christian life, as we know from other passages in scripture, is described not only as walking, but it's described as a race. 1 Corinthians 9.24 says, run in such a way that you may win. Hebrews 12.2 commands us to, to run with endurance the race that is set before us. Meaning our lives in Christ are to be run with purpose and direction and focus. But as we strive to run to win, as we seek to run to win, we have to remember that the Christian life in scripture is more often described as a walk. As believers are called to walk worthy. Here are a few cross-references you can jot down. Ephesians 4.1 says, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Or 1 Thessalonians 2.12 says, Walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. And then our passage, Colossians 1.10, Walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Bringing it back to Colossians. Paul's overarching concern for this church was that they would live lives worthy of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul was completely aware of the heretical teachings that were now infiltrating this church. And he wanted to help them mark and avoid those teachings so they could instead set their minds on and fix their gazes upon the truth. And specifically the truths they knew about Jesus Christ. So that they could live more faithfully for him and honor him and serve him and strive to walk as he walked. So again, this idea of walking worthy or the worthy walk is the central idea of this text. If these four verses could be represented by the wheel of a bicycle, walking worthy would be the hub of that wheel. And then out of that hub would come these many different spokes. And in fact, in our text, I count eight of those spokes which are going to serve as the eight points for the message this morning. And those points, I'll run through them real quickly. Don't worry, we'll go through them one by one. As Christians, we are to be walking worthy in reliance upon prayer. That's one. Seeking the Lord's will, pleasing the Lord, bearing good fruit, increasing in the knowledge of God, relying upon the strength of the Lord, demonstrating steadfastness and patience, and joyously giving thanks. Those are the eight spokes, the eight points. We'll get right into it with our first point this morning, where we see in verse 9 that the follower of Jesus Christ is committed to walking worthy in reliance upon prayer. Look at the first few words here, verse 9. It says, For this reason also, 
Since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. Now let's stop right there. We note that that Paul begins here with this transitionary phrase, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it, he says. Well, what reason also? And on what day did you hear it? And what is the it that you're talking about here, Paul? Well, as the Spirit moved him to write these words, what Paul is referring to with that word it in verse 9 is the highly positive report he got from Epaphras back in Colossians 1.4. In fact, let's go right back there again. Look at Colossians 1.4. This is the essence of the good report that Epaphras gave to Paul. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel which has come to you just as in all the world also it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing. Praise the Lord. That, that's quite the report. But then even look down at Colossians 1.8. It continues. He says, and he also informed us of your love in the spirit. And it's this entire bundle of good news which Epaphras had shared with him, which feeds into what Paul says here in Colossians 1.9 when he says, for this reason also, since the day we heard of it. The it being the glowing report Epaphras had given him about the faith of the Colossians. Since the day we heard of all of that, Paul is saying, we, meaning Timothy and Epaphras and I, have not ceased to pray for you. Don't miss that. That clear connection that's being drawn here by Paul between thanksgiving and prayer. He's already made this connection up at verse 3 of chapter 1. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. He's going to do it again in verse 12 as he closes out his prayer and says he is giving thanks to the Father. But note again this connection, and this is a vital one, between thankfulness and prayerfulness. As we see right here, Paul's prayers for the Colossian church were fueled by his thankfulness for them. He was constantly praying for them because of what God had already done in them and through them. I suspect that for many of us here this morning, as we take stock of our prayer lives, the opposite tends to be the case. Though we know and understand intellectually, having sat in church for however many years, that there is this connection between thankfulness and prayer. Though we know passages like Philippians 4, 6, where it says, Be anxious for nothing, but by everything in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. We know that text. But in practice, we tend to divorce thankfulness from prayer. We tend to think of thanking God and asking God as being these competing alternatives we're feeling full of thanks when all is well we have those feelings when there's peace in the home or prosperity in the career or progress that's being made spiritually but the more thankful we feel we also might have this reduced interest level in actually asking god to answer our prayers we would never say it this way but we act sometimes as as though because our cup is full He can go ahead now and fill somebody else's. We don't need to pray. Then there's the other side of the coin. When in these times of desperation and worry and hopelessness and grief, we naturally start begging God to act, to do something for us, to, to rescue us, to relieve us, to comfort us. But if we're being honest, we're often much slower to give thanks in those seasons, aren't we? We're not as motivated to be thankful in those seasons, are we? Rather, we're motivated more in those seasons by by desperation and want and desire. Those are the seasons where we just throw out those life preserver prayers. You know, Lord, bring my spouse back under my roof. Open the eyes of my spiritually blind son. Lord, heal dad. Lord, convict mom of her sin. Uh, I'll get back to offering thanks again, God, one day, but right now I need you to help me. Well, in his prayer here, Paul is correcting every distorted view of thanksgiving and prayer that might be held in the room here today. Because Paul was so overwhelmingly thankful to God for the work he had already done in the Colossian believers, he didn't stop asking God to do more and more in them and through them. He was unceasing in his prayers for them. 
He took his own advice. 1 Thessalonians 5.17, pray without ceasing. His thankfulness fueled his prayers. He thanked God as he asked God. He was modeling for the Colossian believers what he would say to them later in Colossians 4.2, where he tells them, devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving. And what an important reminder that is, again, of that inseparable connection between thanksgiving and prayer. And what an encouragement that is to all of us, not only to never tire of thanking God, but to be unceasing in our prayers to God, to not drive an artificial wedge between thanksgiving and prayer. They go together like chili and cinnamon rolls. Or if you're not native, like I'm not native, like two wings of a bird, right? Alexander McLaren once said, the freedom and hardiness of our prayers for others are a very sharp test of both our piety to God and our love to men. And that was Paul, a man, an apostle who was profoundly devoted to God, but who also had this love for fellow believers, which flowed out of his devotion to God. How about you? Are you praying for your own spiritual walk? Are you praying for the spiritual walk of others? Do you have others praying for you in that regard? Is your walk with Christ worthy in the sense that it is buoyed and driven and fanned into flame by faithful prayer? Well, as we're about to see, Paul's prayer for the Colossians had this specific aim and target and purpose in view. As he gives thanks to them, as he prayed for them, as he, as he asked God on their behalf, he asked for something very specific. Look at the rest of verse 9. It says, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That brings us to our next point, our next spoke in the hub The follower of Christ not only walks worthy in reliance on prayer, he or she is committed to walking worthy and seeking the Lord's will. Look at the language of that text again. Verse 9. We have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, we have a number of ideas we need to work through here, but I want you to note right away that Paul here says he is asking that these Colossian believers would be filled with knowledge. Now, it's not just any form of knowledge that Paul is praying for here, and he's certainly not praying here that they would be filled with knowledge for the sake of becoming more knowledgeable. Knowledge, we know from 1 Corinthians 8.1, can make one arrogant, or as other translations have it, it can puff up. No, the text here makes clear that Paul was asking that these Colossian believers would be filled with the knowledge of his will, it says. Now, we could go down a very, very deep rabbit hole here. And we could spend the rest of our time this morning, and not just this morning, but several consecutive Sunday mornings discussing the will of God, how to define the will of God, how to know the will of God, how to distinguish between the decretive and the perceptive wills of God. But we're not going to do that today. We're not going to go in that total rabbit hole and deep dive. And that's because, as we're about to see in context, Paul's focus here when he speaks of his will, meaning God's will, is actually quite narrow. More on that in just a second. For now, I want to remind us that our passage today, this whole section, is Paul's summary of what he has been praying for the Colossians. And as we see here in verse 9, he's praying that they may be filled with the knowledge of his will. Paul wastes No words here. Every single one of Paul's words in this passage has rich meaning and significance, including those three words, may be filled. I want to camp out there for just a minute. See, those words, may be filled, represent what's known as a divine passive. And all that means is that though God is not mentioned by name here, you don't see the name, the word God there, right? He's the implied subject of this entire statement. Though God is not mentioned by name here, he is clearly the one that's being spoken of here. And it is his will, meaning God's will, that Paul was praying the Colossian believers would come to know. See, the idea that's being presented here through this use of this divine passive is that the Colossians, they would not be able to determine God's will through their own efforts or their own labors. No Ouija board or or reading the tea leaves was going to help them discover God's will. No, what they needed was to have God's will revealed to them. 
and they needed God himself to reveal his will to them. And then there's just the meaning of that word filled itself. And this is highly significant in the context of Paul's letter here and the situation he's writing into and the theological heresy he's writing against. See, the false teachers that Epaphras had come to, to, to Rome to tell Paul about, the false teachers in Colossae, they were the ones who were claiming to be full of knowledge and to have a fullness of knowledge and to be experienced in the fullness of truth. Those false teachers back in Colossae were suggesting that the gospel that Epaphras had been proclaiming there in that church was not the full message. It didn't represent the full range of of religious truth that the people in that city needed to know. These false teachers claimed that, that they had the full range of truth and knowledge at their disposal, which is what they were trying to spread there in Colossae. Well, what we see throughout the letter of Colossians, and it's brilliant, is Paul attempting over and over to cut off those false teachers at the pass. And he does so by appropriating their own language and redirecting it to point these believers to the glories and the sufficiency and the preeminence of Jesus Christ. For instance, we see Paul here in in verse 9 using terms like filled. Elsewhere, he uses words like full or, or fullness or a synonym, complete, And what he's doing is he's referring to the fact through that language that the false teachers don't have complete knowledge. They don't have full knowledge because fullness is found exclusively in Christ and his gospel. In fact, look with me at Colossians 1.19, just down the page. We see him do it here. He says, for it was the father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Or Colossians 2.9 speaking of Jesus Christ, says, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Or look at the next verse, verse 10. And in him, meaning Christ, you have been made complete. That's the same term. Paul is just toying with the false teachers here. He's saying the Colossian church didn't need to be filled with philosophy or speculation or other forms of worldly wisdom. What they needed to be filled with more and more and filled to completeness was the knowledge of God's will as we're going to see, as as mediated through Christ. Paul does this not only with the word fullness, though. He does it with with the word knowledge, which is also mentioned here in verse 9. See, the false teachers there in Colossae had claimed to have this special form of knowledge, this more insightful, illuminated form of knowledge. They claimed to have gnosis. That's the Greek word for knowledge. They were proto-gnostic. Well, Paul, being no fool, saw their gnosis and raised what they knew with his word epigenosis, meaning full knowledge, total knowledge, complete knowledge, intensive knowledge, thorough knowledge. That's the word he uses here in Colossians 1.9. It's also the word that he'll use later in Colossians 1.12. And what he's doing is he's paving the way for what he'll say later about full knowledge being found in Christ alone. In fact, take a look. We can go over to Colossians 2. We'll be here a couple of times this morning. Look at Colossians 2. We'll pick it up mid-sentence in verse 2. He says, That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting, look at this, in a true knowledge of God's mystery, comma, that is Christ himself. We're down in Colossians 3, uh, verse 9. He says, do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge, epigenosis, according to the image of the one who created him. In other words, Paul is being very intentional here in Colossians 1.9 and elsewhere in this letter with this very clear choice of words. He knew the nature of the false teaching that was infiltrating the Colossian church. He knew what these early Colossian believers were up against. He knew the claims of these false teachers that they claimed to be the, the possessors of true, full knowledge. And so now here he says, I'm asking that you, Colossians, may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Now, let's take a moment to get even deeper here at the heart of Paul's request in prayer for the knowledge of his will. 
Is Paul here praying that the Colossian believers, through his prayers, would have every answer supplied to them about every single decisional crossroad they would ever make in their lives? You know, which city to live in? What name to give their third-born son? How many miles to walk on a given day? I actually don't think that's what he's getting at here. In fact, we only need to go back to Colossians 2 again to get a sense of what Paul appears to be describing here in Colossians 1 when he talks about knowledge and wisdom and understanding. Again, let's look at Colossians 2. We'll look at verses 1 and also verse 2 again. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have on your behalf and for those who are at Laodicea and for all those who have not personally seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery that is Christ himself in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul prayed a similar prayer for the Ephesian church. Go with me over to Ephesians 1, where we'll see him praying something very similar. Look at Ephesians 1, a couple of pages over to your left. And we'll pick it up in Ephesians 1.15. Paul here says, For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not, give, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Footnote, there's that connection again. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. And then look up the page. Look at Ephesians 1.9 says, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times that is the summing up of all things in Christ. Piecing that all together, what are each of those passages referring to when they're talking about knowledge and wisdom and understanding? They're referring to the plan of God the Father. They're referring to the person and the fullness and the work of Jesus Christ. They're, they're highlighting the mystery of the gospel. So coming back to our text, Colossians 1.9, this knowledge of his will language is, is not so much concerned with God's private plans and purposes for each and every individual believer as it is concerned with God's will in terms of his eternally decreed plans related to everything that that was and will and, and will be in the world, including the fall in the world, the corruption of the world, God's plan of salvation for this same fallen and corrupt world, which he purposed in Jesus Christ. God's plans included his initial dealings with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and the people of Israel, but his plan also included, as we saw last time in Colossians 1, 5, and 6, and this is the mystery, the word of truth. The gospel going forth into all the world and bearing fruit and increasing. So what Paul had in mind here when he's praying this prayer in verse 9, that the Colossians would be filled with the knowledge of his will, was that they would come to know God's will for the world and for them through Christ. As that great mystery of the gospel going out to the Gentiles, which in fact had happened to them coming to Colossae. This was the knowledge which Paul wanted every believer there in Colossae to be filled with. To know who God is, to know who they were as undeserving sinners, and to know what Christ came to do, that is to, to reconcile undeserving sinners to himself. And then looking at the end of verse 9, and bringing this back into our context, this is that form of, look at his words here, spiritual wisdom and understanding that all followers of Jesus Christ are called to have. We too need to be continually growing in our knowledge of God's will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. And how do we do so? Well, there's no better way to know God's will. There's no better way to grow in spiritual wisdom and understanding than to be faithful and diligent students of his word. We go to God's word so that we can know the God of the word. So that we can receive James 3.17, wisdom from above, and then glorify him by applying that wisdom we receive to our lives. In other words, the knowledge that we receive, this wisdom that we attain, this understanding that we develop is never to be merely intellectual. 
It's to be effective. It's to bring about change and transformation and growth in the life of each and every believer. Speaking of which, in verse 10, we get to our third point, our third spoke in the hub. This would be that the follower of Christ commits to walk worthy in pleasing the Lord. Walking worthy in pleasing the Lord. Again, look at verse 10. There's our purpose statement, so that, and then this, you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. As we've already seen, walking worthy is the central theme of this passage. And it's a relatable metaphor for the broader idea of how a person is to live his or her life in Christ. Followers of Jesus Christ used to walk on a path of sin. Ephesians 2.2 says, We formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. But no longer. Ephesians 4.7 says, We walk no longer, just as the Gentiles walk. Or John said in 1 John 1.6, If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Rather, followers of Christ, those who have trusted in the perfect work he accomplished on the cross, we walk in holiness. Romans 6.4 says we walk in newness of life. Galatians 5.16 says we walk by the Spirit. Ephesians 5.8 says we walk as children of light. Ephesians 5.15 says be careful how we walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of our time because the days are evil. And our walk is not to just be any walk. No, our walk, bringing it back to our text, Colossians 1.10, is to be a worthy walk. We walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Now that word, worthy, it's literal or wooden meeting. It means of equal weight. It brings to mind the picture of a scale. Put in your mind the image of an old grocer's scale or a banker's scale or the scales of justice, right? And the idea here is that the Lord Jesus Christ himself is the standard weight on one side of that scale. He's the weight against which our lives are to be measured. And to be worthy in the sense that Paul is talking about here in Colossians 1.10 is to somehow measure up to that standard. Can you think of a more daunting task than that? It sounds difficult. It sounds hard. But Paul couldn't be any more clear about what he's saying here. He is saying that in order for you and for me, as followers of Jesus Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, we are commanded to live transformed lives. Genuinely Christ-like lives. To strive to live up to that weight he has set before us on the other side of the scale. To borrow from 1 John 2, 6, to walk in the same manner he walked. To borrow from 1 Peter 1, 15, to walk like the Holy One who has called us, to be holy as he is holy. That's the charge. That, that's the main idea here that Paul is imparting to these Colossian believers as he prayed for them. And by extension, that's the charge that God is extending to every single one of us this morning who have trusted in Christ, to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, in equal measure to the Lord. Now you might be thinking, wow, thanks Paul. That's all I need to do, just walk the way the Lord walked, follow in the perfect footsteps of the eternal son of God, that's it? Do you wanna give me some additional guidance, Paul, please? Well, for starters, yes, that is the command. That is exactly what he says as we seek to walk worthy. But note here that Paul gives the Colossian believers and Christians of all future generations greater clarity on what this is supposed to look like in the remaining words of his prayer here. It starts with this one in uh, verse 10. As we walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, it says to please him in all respects. That's very typical language for Paul, by the way, this pleasing language. You could jot down 1 Thessalonians 4.1. It says, finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, that you excel still more. Or 2 Corinthians 5.9 says, therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. See, the aim of believers in their worthy conduct should be to please the Lord in every way, to do what he commands, to do what he asks for us in each aspect of our lives. That's not legalism, it's obedience. That's the, the, the right and reasonable response to one whose soul has been purchased and redeemed. 
That's not how the world thinks about pleasing or pleasure, is it? No, the wisdom of the world would have us believe that our chief end in these bodies, on this planet, in the time that we have, is to maximize our pleasure. Whether that be filling our already full bellies at a buffet, or doom-scrolling Twitter for hours on end, or binge-watching Netflix, or fulfilling our basest sexual and carnal desires. The wisdom of the world would also have us believe that we are to really focus on pleasing others, to be charitable, to be altruistic, especially when we can leverage that to gain something for ourselves. So as to be socially accepted, so as to be relationally connected, so as to be politically favored, so as to be financially comfortable. We can appear all we want to be altruistically motivated, doing things for the good of others, but in reality, we're just being commended to be highly ambitious ladder climbers. Well, the scriptures teach us that our aim should not ultimately be to please ourselves, certainly, nor should it even be to please others. It should be to please God. 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 is another passage on this topic. It says, just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who examines our heart. Does that describe you this morning? Would you describe your life as one that is dedicated to pleasing the Lord in every respect? Does your time spent in the word and prayer reflect your desire to please the Lord? Does your thought life reflect your desire to to please the Lord? Do your attitudes, does your attitude reflect a person whose desire is to please the Lord? Does the chip on your shoulder reflect one who seeks to please the Lord? Does your muttering and grumbling and complaining and gossiping tongue reflect the heart of one who seeks to please the Lord? Paul was charging these Colossian Christians to walk in a manner worthy of the one they had confessed as Lord. And as they did so, they were to seek to please him, it says, in every respect. And we are called to do the same. To live a life that's commensurate with what the Lord has already done for us. To live a life that is in conformity with the union with Christ that we have now and his purpose for our lives. To walk a walk that matches up with our Christian profession. And how do we do that? We do it by faith. Hebrews 11.6 says, without faith, it is impossible to what? Please him. That brings us to our fourth point this morning. The follower of Christ is committed to walking worthy by bearing fruit in every good work. This next aspect of walking worthy comes later in verse 10. Bearing fruit in every good work. The one who walks worthy is fruitful. He or she bears fruit. They do so, it says, in every good work. During their pagan days, the Colossian Christians here had expressed their hostility to God by doing evil deeds. Look at Colossians 121. This speaks of their old life. Although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. But those days were now past. The old had passed away. Behold, the new had come. And as evidence of having been born again and regenerated and redeemed and made new in Christ, fruit naturally should have started to appear. This is Jesus in in John 15, 5, speaking to his disciples where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. And then that fruit would have then blossomed in the form of their conduct, or to use the words here, their good works. We have a bunch of cross-references for that. Galatians 6.10 says, let us do good to all people, good, and especially to those who are the household of faith. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, 2 Timothy 2.21 says we are to be vessels for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now an interesting note here is that those words in verse 10, bearing fruit, they're in the present tense. Which in the Greek language signals to us that what Paul is communicating to us here is that the Christian life is to exhibit continual fruitfulness. We are to be, if we're using the tree metaphor, perennially bearing fruit. We don't sprout a single piece of fruit and then wilt and then die. No. 
We're to be like that fruit tree which yields its fruit and then keeps on growing, allowing it to yield even more fruit. I love what the old Puritan Samuel Rutherford said. It's so simple, so pithy. He says, uh, fruit bearing, that we are to grow and be green. To grow and be green. One last point here on bearing fruit. According to verse 10 here, it says, the worthy walk manifests fruit in every good work. Bearing fruit in every good work. So the life that pleases the Lord, the the life that represents the worthy walk, this fruitful life is one that abounds in every good work. So no limitation is indicated here, meaning every sort of good work is a legitimate opportunity for the Christian to put his new life, her new life on display, whether that be through acts of public worship, songs of praise, praying, whether that be through acts of service done for the good of other people, so common deeds of kindness or acts of charity, or whether that be simply cultivating in your own life Christian virtues like meekness or long-sufferingness or or self-control. So long as we recognize, and this is key, especially if you're new to the church or new to church in general, is that good works always have to be in the category of being the fruit of an already existing right relationship with God, not the root of having a right relationship with God. Mere works never produce salvation, but, but works will always be the fruit, the, the product of having been granted salvation. Next, we get to our fifth point this morning, that follower of Christ is committed to walking worthy in increasing in the knowledge of God. That's what we see at the end of verse 10 here. The next way a person walks worthy, as we see here in the prayer from Paul for the Colossians, is that they be increasing in the knowledge of God. Now, we know to become a Christian in the first place, to to be saved, a convicted sinner needs to know something. They need to know that they're a sinner. They need to know that salvation is found in Christ alone. They need to, Romans 10, 9, confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. But once they've been saved, it's not as though growing in knowledge then comes to an end. In many ways, that's when the knowledge really starts to kick in and the ability to have knowledge truly starts. Because now, as a believer with eyes of faith, this believer is now capable of spiritually understanding and discerning that which they were unable to understand before. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says of the believer that they are able to combine spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. And verse 15, to appraise all things. It's only the believer that can live out 2 Peter 3.18, growing in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We know from other writings of Paul that a a major motivation of his entire life and his ministry was to know Christ, to know him, to use uh, Philippians 3.10 and the power of his resurrection, he says, and and the fellowship of his suffering. And so should it be with us to know him, to know him more deeply, to know him more intimately. And that can only happen, that can only arise through a humble study of God's revelation of himself through the scriptures so that we can then take the biblical truth that we learn and apply it to our lives. See, so many professed believers today are concerned more with action than they are with thought. Practices have become much more popularized than holding to precepts. People will say things like, I just want to be the hands and feet of Jesus. I'm going to go build houses in Mexico. I'm going to build wells in Africa. I'm going to adopt the Christianized mantra of Jesus plus nothing equals everything. But they haven't studied him deeply. They haven't drunk deeply from the wells of scripture to understand what that even means. And there's a whole other camp of, of believers and professed believers who are so busy pursuing their various hobbies or, or washing their car for the fourth time this week or planning that guy's trip or planning for Christmas of 2025 that they have no time to tell you why the incarnation matters or what the atoning death of Christ accomplished or the Holy Spirit's ministry today or anything beyond a kindergarten-level comprehension of any of the attributes of God. That they'll say things like, don't bother me with all that theological stuff, Pastor Jesse. I'm just trying to love people. Okay, you should love people. And as Christians, we should especially love fellow believers, John 13, 34, and 35. 
But what is that love even rooted in if it's not rooted in a thorough, comprehensive, and accurate view of the God you say you're representing to those people you're saying you're trying to love? Bring it back to our text today. The Colossian Christians were in danger here of falling under the sway of the false teaching that was infiltrating their church. They didn't have the luxury of saying, I'm just trying to love people. They needed answers. They needed to be able to be equipped to stare down false teaching and to be able to articulate why it was false. And of course, so do we. We live in a post-Christian world. We live in a season in which the word, to use Paul's language in 2 Timothy 4.2, is out of season. And we need to increase in the knowledge of God, to use this language here in Colossians 1, not only as a means of rightly worshiping him, but as a way to equip ourselves and the next generation to stand firm against the various forms of false teaching that are not only swirling around in society, but are picking off churches and pulpits and pastors at an alarming rate. Theology, in other words, is not just for the eggheads in the academy. It's for everybody. It's for all of us. Each of us who knows Jesus Christ as a personal Savior and Lord needs to increase in our knowledge of God. And that can look a number of different ways. You could pick up a book on the attributes of God in sound words. You can commit to a long-term plan, five years, four years, ten years, doesn't matter, to read a, a volume on systematic theology. Come to our Sunday evening summer in the systematic series. Meditate on Psalm 145. Whatever you do, make it a priority to imbibe deeply in the things of God. To grow in your comprehension and and your awareness of the greatness of the Almighty. To pursue a fuller and deeper and clearer insight into who God truly is. As we turn to verse 11, we come upon our sixth point this morning. The follower of Christ is committed to walking worthy and relying upon the strength of the Lord. That's yet another way the Christian walks worthy by relying upon the strength of the Lord. Look at verse 11 where Paul tells the church at Colossae that he was praying that they would be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might. Now, there are three different words that are being woven into what's said here. Strength, power, might. And we have to recognize as believers that we are not inherently strong. Not in our flesh, certainly. And we cannot strengthen ourselves by our own self-will. Rather, to be strong in what matters, we need to be yielded to God who provides us with the strength that we need to follow him and love him and serve him and obey him. Ephesians 3, 14 through 16. And another prayer here. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and earth derives its name that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power through his spirit in the inner man. Ephesians 6.10, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Or Philippians 4.13, it's written on every Christian baseball bat or Christian basketball shoes. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Just as there is a need for wisdom and knowledge as we seek to walk worthy, there is a need equally for God's power and strength to carry us through those situations that we simply don't have the human capacity or strength to get through, right? There are a number of you here this morning who know this truth from past experience, needing the Lord's strength. And I know for a fact there are a number in our body this morning or elsewhere who are needing the Lord's strength as the Lord allows them to walk through the season they're in right now. And then there are those of us this morning who are just a phone call away, or an ultrasound away, or a biopsy away from being brought to our knees and realizing how reliant on the the Lord's power and strength we are about to become. The reality is, even as Christians, though our hope has been forever secured by the victory over sin and death that Christ accomplished on his bloody cross, we still fight and wrestle with the cosmic powers of this present darkness, Ephesians 6, 12. And as we fight those battles in our bodies of flesh, ruled by the spirit still, our batteries do run low from time to time, our spiritual batteries. The person who walks worthy understands this. The person who walks worthy recognizes this. They recognize that they need continuous power and strength from the Lord. They recognize that the high standards for the Christian life, think of that equal scale idea again. 
that are, that are set out for us by God in his word cannot be lived out through our own efforts. They recognize that what they need, what we need, is God's divine power. 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called us by his own glory and excellence. Bring it back to Colossians 1.11. The one who walks worthy recognizes that the strength they need comes from the one who is described here as having all power and who supplies that power in abundant supply according, it says, to his glorious might. That is, according to his inherent power and strength. The inherent power and strength of this eternally glorious and majestic God. A parallel passage that brings out this might and power of God would be Ephesians 1, uh, 18 through 20. It says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe? These are in accordance, it says, with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So no matter how grave the situation, no matter how pressing the demand, no matter how difficult the trial for the abiding follower of Jesus Christ who seeks to walk worthy, there are always powerful and sufficient divine resources ever at the hand. As one commentator puts it, our resources are not at the mercy of the exigencies of the moment, but are to be measured by the might of God. All right, continuing on in verse 11. Our seventh point this morning. The follower of Christ is committed to walking worthy in demonstrating steadfastness and patience. That's the rest of verse 11. After he says, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. As Paul here prayed for these Colossian believers and their their ability to walk worthy, he prayed that God would give them steadfastness and patience. The word steadfastness there is hupomene. It's a a compound term that literally means to, to remain under. But smooth out a bit, it means to endure, to bear up under trial, to have fortitude, to have the ability, the capacity to see things through. The term really points to circumstances sent to us by God and now remaining patient under those circumstances, no matter how difficult or pressure-packed those circumstances may be. And then there's the word here, patience, macrothemia. And that word literally means to put wrath far away, which doesn't really roll off the tongue so easily, to put wrath far away. But it describes essentially having a a long-suffering spirit or temperament. This ability to put some distance between your emotions and your actions. It's the opposite of of wrath or revenge. Instead, it speaks of an an even temperedness to tolerate those who who test your patience, to forgive and to be forbearing toward others in love. And as believers, isn't that the walk we're called to walk? We are to demonstrate patience and steadfastness as our testimony for what Christ has done in us. We are to refuse to be provoked. We are to refuse to exact revenge. We are to refuse to retaliate. Instead, what we're called to do is contentedly persevere and persist in the path of righteousness and truth. Hebrews 12.2 gives us the model. We fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. And then this last component of the worthy walk that Paul here commends to the Colossian believers, uh, which we see here in his prayer, is that of joyful thanksgiving. That's our eighth and final point this morning, walking worthy and joyously giving thanks. Now we have to remember, again, this is a prison epistle. Paul's imprisoned as he writes this letter. He has every reason, humanly speaking, to grumble and complain, but that's not what we see him doing, is it? No, he's no complainer in chains or stoic in stocks, No, look what we see. It says he was joyously, that's actually at the end of verse 11, but it belongs with verse 12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Here's the key takeaway principle for this one, point number eight. The person who is committed to walking worthy will be someone who joyously gives thanks to the Father no matter the circumstances. They will recognize that God the Father is the one who bestows on us every good and perfect gift. James 1.17. 
They know that thankfulness is a key note and hallmark of the entire Christian life. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 says, give thanks in all circumstances. They'll heed the words of Paul, not only here in Colossians, but in Philippians 4.6. In everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. A worthy walk, then, is a thankful walk. A continuously thankful walk. But not only that, it's a joyful walk. As believers, far beyond anyone else who has ever lived on this planet, for all of history, we ought to be, we have to be joyful people. Our joy, though, is true joy, lasting joy, biblical joy. It's not rooted in fickle feelings or changing circumstances. It's not rooted in our experiences or our wealth or our title or our prosperity or popularity. Instead, our joy is rooted in and made possible by the gospel. We are to be regularly giving thanks to God the Father. Why? Well, ultimately, Ephesians 1, it's to the praise of his glory. Everything's to the praise of his glory. But also it's because he, as it says here in verse 12, has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's qualified us. That that means he's made us competent. He's made us fit. And he's qualified us to, to share, it says, in this inheritance with his saints. Though we as believers are, com- are completely unfit in ourselves, we have nothing on our resume to, to merit this, God has fitted us to share in the inheritance of his holy people. His inheritance, it says, in light. I can't help but think of 2 Corinthians 4, 6. God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So like these early Colossian believers, we are called to give thanks personally and directly to our Heavenly Father. We're to be praising God because he has qualified us to be spiritual heirs. He has granted us a right standing before him because of Christ. He has justified us. He has redeemed us. He has saved us. And why? Again, it's to the praise of his glory. But also to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. We've been promised in the word that Christ is preparing a place for us. John 14, 2. We've been promised that our eternal inheritance is already there. Incorruptible, undefiled, kept in heaven for us. 1 Peter 1, 4. We've been promised, Romans 8, that we are children of God and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And we've been promised that this inheritance that we now share, that we have today but will possess fully later, With these saints, the other saints, the saints in light. It's an inheritance with the saints in light. Such a rich concept. Let's just remember, if we worship the God who is light, the God that declared, let there be light. We have been saved by the blood of the one, John 8, 12, who is the light of the world. 1 Peter 2, 9 says, we have been called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. And if you look ahead in the book to Revelation 21 and 22, we know that where we are going eternally is to a place that is flooded with light, whose lamp is the Lamb. Remembering all of this, our position, our standing, our citizenship, our inheritance, our future home, our our inheritance as saints in light ought to be regular cause and reason for thanksgiving. Though we were not and are not worthy of our salvation, God deemed us worthy and granted us salvation anyway. Though we were once fist-shaking rebels against him, he saw fit to grant us membership into his family. Though we absolutely deserve the anguish of the flames of hell for eternity, he secured us access to heaven. How could those truths not provoke genuine hearts of thanks and lips which declare thanks to him. So we're called to walk worthy. Not by groveling, not by grumbling, not by being joyless ingrates, not with an attitude of complaining or complacency, but rather with joyful thanksgiving. That's the call, church. Are we willing to live up to it? Let's pray. God, thank you so much for your timeless and precious word. Thank you for using a man like Paul who once walked fiercely in opposition to you, but because of your great grace became such a great spokesman, apostle, 
writer of scripture that we can now read and understand and apply to our lives. God, I pray that this morning we would be challenged and and provoked to make sure that we are walking worthy in each and every aspect of our life. Certainly as believers, that's the call, to make sure that we walk worthy of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if there's anyone here who does not know you, who has not given their life to Christ, I pray that they would hear what I'm about to say and hear it clearly, that you cannot walk your way to heaven. You cannot walk in a worthy manner and hope that that is gonna make you good enough or fit enough or clean enough or pure enough to stand before a holy God. Rather, what you need to do is to be washed and cleansed through the blood of Christ, to trust in his finished work on the cross as being the only means by which you might be saved. God, I pray if there's someone here this morning that they would hear that, they would bow the knee to Jesus Christ, and then from that day forward, walk in a manner worthy of him. God, thank you for what you're doing in this church. Thank you for being a glorious, wise, all-powerful, good God. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.